join together for Bible study here in midweek. So if you are visiting with us, we definitely want to welcome you to the Dalrida Church of Christ here and uh, invite you to come back every time you might be able to. We are going through a study of what I would call the plan of salvation uh, and uh, some other, uh, what you know, we, we use the different terms, the five steps of salvation sometimes with regard to studying these things. Uh, I actually liked uh, something I found today where it talked about it being elements of conversion. I like that better, I think, if I had to, to pick and choose something to describe what we're talking about. But the reality is, is we're trying to walk through the scriptures and talk about and discuss what God has for us as his wonderful gift of salvation. And so as we continue this study tonight, I hope to continue looking at God's word in that aspect and uh, see if we can see some more challenging um, lessons for us. As we think about what is necessary for us to accept that gift of salvation, it's important for us to kind of look at the whole plan of salvation. We've looked at a couple of verses talking about this being a wonderful, blessed gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 is one of those verses that many of us have turned to and even a lot of our religious friends turn to as well, talking about this wonderful gift of salvation. Of course, there it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. There's no dispute. It is God's gift to us for salvation. It is nothing we can earn. It is definitely nothing that we deserve. And as we live each and every day of our lives, it should become much a very stark reality for us to consider what God has done for us in our lives, giving us uh, His Son as a sacrifice and, and presenting to us this gift that we can take hold of and enjoy the wonderful blessings that come from being saved. Another passage of Scripture which I think ties in well with tonight's lesson as we continue to, to think about things, is Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And if you'll look there with me, it also talks about this gift that we have. And of course, a lot of us know Romans chapter 6, verse 23, because the first part of that says, for the wages of sin is death. That's usually the part that we quote, right? Uh, we, we think about the fact that if we did not have salvation, if we don't have God's wonderful gift, what we earn by our actions and the deeds that we do in this world is death. That's the wages that we get. You know, I go to work every day and I work for wages. I work for a living. I, I do things in order to be compensated for my time and my work and my efforts. And most of you, all of you do the same unless you're in the joys of retirement. Then you're just kind of reaping the benefits of your hard toil and labor. Right, Wayne? Uh, you're, you're thinking back of all those days and of how hard you worked and those things that you did save up and store for yourselves. You're living on those wages. Well, well, God tells us through Paul, that's Paul speaking to the Romans here, that what we earn in our lives, the, the actions of our lives, earn us death. That's our wages. The wages of sin is death. And we all sin, falling short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23, flip over three chapters if you want to. But what Paul says, he goes on to say here, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I want to emphasize that last part, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Throughout our studies so far, before we get to that, put a pin in it. We, we've talked about four different elements of the conversion process or four different steps of salvation, whatever you want to call these things. 
with regard to what God has prescribed in His Word for us to be able to step forward and claim that free gift that He's given to us. Uh, those things which God has, has prescribed in His own Word and revealed to us that we must do in order to be saved. And we've looked at these passages of Scriptures. These Scriptures clearly tie these elements with salvation. It's not something that I'm putting together. It's something that God Himself has put together in the Scripture. So God says hearing is required. You cannot just be saved out of ignorance. You cannot be saved without knowing God's will and doing God's will. You, you can't be saved without hearing who God is and what God has done for you. You can't be saved and grab a hold of that gift of salvation if you don't even know who His Son is. He says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We've got to believe those things. Our faith develops from hearing. And we grab a hold of those things and they become part of who we are by believing the Word of God. Mark 16, 16, those who believe and are baptized shall be saved. I didn't say that. Jesus did. Believing is required for salvation. Repentance. We've read scriptures in our studies so far talking about the essential nature of repentance in a life. You can't keep on living the way that you were living if you want to grab a hold of that gift of salvation because as we talked about in that lesson, if you are, are going away from God in a life of sin, you can't, you're not turning around and going toward Him. You never will unless you repent. And that's why Jesus said, Repent or you shall likewise perish. Luke 13, 3 and verse 5. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Paul, uh, Peter himself said there on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. It is essential for us to repent. It is essential for us to confess. And we've seen the scriptures as we talked last week in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, talking about the requirement of confessing who Jesus is that He is the Son of God, that He is the one who, who died for us, that, that it is His blood that causes our sins to be washed away. And we confess that we are His by our mouth and by our lives and those actions that we take based upon that true and that good confession as Paul talks to Timothy about. And this week as we continue to, to move on and talk about the different elements of conversion, we're talking about being baptized. And, and I want to get real blunt with you with regard to the scriptures because these are not things that I say. These are things that, that God has said to us about the essential nature of baptism for one to be converted from a life of sin into a life of salvation and eternal life. It is essential, not because John Cackleman said so, it is essential because God has said so in His Word. We must do the will of the Father if we're going to have salvation is what He says. Part of that doing is accomplishing those things which he, he places as prerequisites for us to attain that gift of salvation. Now again, it's nothing that we earn, and I'm going to get into that a little bit long, uh, later in the lesson as we reiterate that. This is not some kind of a work that we do in anticipation of just wages for that. We don't deserve it. We don't earn salvation. But we obey and we accomplish those things which God has set out for us and one of those things is being baptized. And next week we're going to end up uh, our lesson and close with the idea and, and the concept of looking at staying faithful and preserving, protecting, guarding that gift of salvation that God's given us. When you think about this, and I, and I put it in a puzzle up here, you can, you can show it in many different ways 
with regard to these different elements of conversion and, and elements of uh, salvation that we have all got to consider in our Christian lives. We've got to think about the whole sum, the, the total of these items. One of uh, the favorite verses I know of my good brother, Mark Davidson, of Psalm 119, 160. And it's one of the verses that, uh, that you look at and you should understand that, that concept. It says there in Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. The sum of your word is truth. God says you've got to look at the, the, the entire picture. Because when you think about it you, and, and you read the scriptures, you may not get 100% of every concept by reading one passage of scripture. A good example of this I like to look at is, is the Great Commission that we see in the scriptures. Not many of us are going to dispute or, or have a problem with that Great Commission that God uh, gave through Jesus Christ as, as Jesus had all the power and that authority given to him and he transfers that commission to his apostles, right? And those disciples that before he leaves this earth. And if you look, there are three different passages of scriptures. And I want to briefly look at this real quickly because I think it exemplifies the idea of looking at the sum of God's truth. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, some of us could probably quote that, right? That's Matthew chapter 28. Same commission is chronicled over in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 16. It says there that Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And again, a third time, you don't see it in the Gospel of John, but you do see it in the Gospel of Luke. In the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 49, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now you look at these three passages of scriptures, and what you're going to see very quickly when you put them side by side is that they don't contain the exact same words or the exact same commandments given from Jesus in each of these passages. Does that mean that any passage is less than the other passage? I don't think any of us would necessarily ever say that. When you look at the scriptures that are given here and inspired by God, there's going to be different viewpoints that are considered. There's going to be different uh, points that may be made because of the gospel and then who the, the author is or who the, the one who they're writing it to. All those factors come into play with regard to these gospel accounts and, and the letters, the epistles that Paul later writes. And, and the context, by the way, that's, that's what you've got to think about, is the context of these passages have all got to be considered. But how do we reconcile these? Well, we look at this again, that the principle that we have from Psalm chapter 119, 160, that the sum of your word is truth. Put these together. Just because Matthew doesn't talk about repenting. Does that mean repentance is not going to be necessary on these people whenever they believe or they hear this word, when they are made disciples by being baptized? Does that mean they don't have to repent? They can just be baptized? No. That's not what that scripture means at all. Just because it may not be present by word in there does not mean it's necessarily wrong. Likewise, the idea of believing is not mentioned in the the gospel account in Matthew, or when you look in the, the gospel account there in Luke. It's very interesting. 
Are we saying that you don't have to believe in order to become a disciple, a baptized believer in Jesus Christ? No, we're not saying that. We know belief is required. So when you look at the sum of all the word, that becomes the truth. So I encourage you to think about this as you, as you, you consider these different elements of conversion, as you think about this, the plan of salvation that God has revealed for us in his word is the fact that you may not find each and every element or step in one passage. But what you will always see is when you put God's word all together, he conveys truth to us. The idea of baptism is conveyed in his scripture very plainly and very clearly to us as being essential for salvation. Now again, salvation, what is salvation? Salvation is the forgiveness of our sins. As Romans chapter 6, 23, we just talked about, reads, the wages of our sin is death. The only way to get past that is to have forgiveness of those sins and have those sins blotted out in our life. Forgiveness of sins is paramount and is required for salvation. So when you think about the concept there with regard to the idea of, of forgiveness of sins along with the concept of salvation, it also parallels the concept and discussion usually about obtaining eternal life. We're using different words, but really conceptually speaking, we're all talking about the same thing. And that's making our life right with God so that we will ultimately have a life with Him eternally in heaven. Three scriptures come right off the bat that I want to point, off, uh, point out to you with respect to the essentiality of baptism during the course of our conversion to being a faithful Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ. One, Mark 16, 16, we just read that a moment ago. And if you think about it in a moment ago, that part of the Great Commission there. But in Mark, Jesus is recorded there saying that those who believe and are baptized shall be saved. Those who disbelieve shall be condemned. And we talked about that during our belief and, and we talked about it during our lesson talking about believing and having faith in God. And this, this obviously links the two together. The idea of believing going along with baptism is it, progressional in our concept. It, it becomes a, a step and a process that you progress from just having faith and belief to realizing I've got to be baptized. I've got to have my sins washed away through the, the, the bonds of baptism. Now, if you don't believe, there's no sense in even talking about baptism. That's why I think when people start saying, well, it doesn't say it in the latter part of, of Mark 16, verse 16. Well, no, it doesn't because it doesn't matter at that point. If you don't believe, who cares? Where are you going to go? You're not going to say it. Those who don't believe and are not baptized shall be condemned. It's not necessary. It's not required there because if you don't believe, you're not even going to get to baptism anyways. But Mark tells us there very clearly that baptism is essential for salvation in the order of the scriptures there. And if you dissect the original text, and we'll talk about this as we kind of go along and we look at other passages dealing with baptism, there is not one passage of scripture where baptism is mentioned along with salvation, where baptism does not begin and come first before salvation. Let me say that again. There is not one passage of Scripture where it talks about a person being saved when baptism is not talked about first if they're talked about in that passage of Scripture. Mark 16, 16 shows us that those who believe and are baptized shall be saved. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Again, we, we've read this passage of Scripture before and in some of our previous lessons, especially the one dealing with repentance. 
But if you think there again, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. That's the day of Pentecost there. We've got the, 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 the brethren who actually crucified the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. They're listening to the sermon that Peter and the other apostles stood up and preached in all their, their languages so everyone could understand. And there at the end of the, of the, the not really even at the end of it, they, they realize in the middle, we don't have this happen very often, do we? But if you actually read the passage of Scripture, they interrupted the sermon. I don't know what Jeremy would do or Billy would do or, or uh, Jared or, or Jer- uh, any, of the, any of the ministers. I don't know what, what they would do if they were interrupted in the middle of their sermon. But I would hope it would be responsive like this. Because you see what happened in the middle of this. They heard that accusation from Peter and the other apostles saying that you are the ones, you are the ones who crucify the Lord Jesus, the Son of God on the cross. In verse 37, it says, When they heard this, when they heard this very fact, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. The scripture plainly talks about not only the requirement, but also the impact and the result and consequence of the preaching there on that day of Pentecost. One, you see Peter saying, In response to their question, what shall we do? They were pierced. They understood that they had crucified the Son of God. They were penitent in their heart. They wanted to change their actions. They wanted to change their lives. That's why they said, what shall we do? Change of heart means a change of action, right? And we see what Peter tells them. They says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now it is important to see and to understand that there is no manuscript that ever says, repent for the forgiveness of your sins and then be baptized. It doesn't exist. Now, we may have some other versions out there that maybe uh, some of the religious folk may have uh, translated or interpreted. But historically speaking, when you look at the words that we have given to us in the, 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 the Bible, These words are in this order, and I believe for a very specific reason, because throughout God's Scripture, you see this order. You see the fact that you've got to change your heart and mind, you've got to act upon that change, and then you understand that you receive that gift of forgiveness. That's what Peter said. Repent, change, change your heart, change your mind, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. One final passage real quick that you think about the essentiality and what baptism does for us. I can't help but, but think of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. And to me, the essentiality is so parallel here in 1 Peter chapter 3 that it's really, I mean, I, I, as I was studying and preparing for this, I read some, some, some attempts to try and dispute this. I found it very interesting to see how they tried to twist things, uh, religiously speaking, to try and say how this, this did not mean baptism in water even. I thought it was very interesting, but 
You see, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 is, is a scripture that most of us know with regard to the parallels of baptism and, and Noah. So contextualists says start in verse 18. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once di disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of the dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This passage of Scripture clearly parallels our baptism in the waters the watery grave of baptism. We'll get to the grave part in a second. Paralleling that to Noah and his family being saved in the ark. What's the parallel there? Well, the parallel is that through water, Noah and his family were saved. It was because of their faith. It was because of their change in their heart and their mind, their obedience to God, their actions that were taken because they believed in God and they had faith in what he said was going to happen, that they boarded that ark and they were saved by the water, ultimately, from that corrupt world. And they were transferred from that corrupt world into an, a new world. A new world that, that began with them and them alone. Now we know as we read the story, sin still ends up existing, right? I mean, but God, as he, he foresaw this, as he planned for this, as he saved Noah and his family, they were the righteous ones in the world, and he translated them in the water past the flood to survive and to be able to begin anew. Yeah, they messed up. That's a good parallel for us sometimes. That continued parallel of, of our life even after baptism. But in a like manner, or as the New American Standard says, corresponding to that, that's that phrase there, in a like manner, or, or similar to that. Maybe the way we might do it in, in modern tech, you know, vernacular. Just like that happened then, we have baptism. Baptism now saves us. The waters of baptism save us from our life of sin, moving forward to a new life, the prospect of, of having sins washed away in that old world, that old body, that old man gone away. And you see, it's not a removal of flesh. Going down in the watery grave of baptism up here in our baptistry, that, that's not necessarily going to clean you. And in fact, I would venture to say that water, it, it, I mean, it may be okay, but it's not a good soapy bathtub, is it? You're not removing dirt from the flesh when you go into the watery graves of baptism. That's not what you're doing. But what you're doing is translating your mind and your body to becoming a new man or woman. And when you rise up from that watery grave of baptism, you have buried that old man there. The word baptism uh, means, uh, it comes from the Greek word baptizo, and it is a word that, that literally means, if you look it up in some of the, uh, the concordances or, or dictionaries, the Greek dictionary, it means to whelm, which I thought was interesting, uh, I kind of think of being overwhelmed. You ever think about being overwhelmed? Daniel, you ever overwhelmed in life? I'm overwhelmed a lot of times. I got too much stuff going on in life, right? Um, and maybe I'm trying to juggle too many things and I become overwhelmed. That kind of stress gets to me a little bit sometimes. 
the, the concept here is very similar to that. It's the idea of being whelmed or being covered wholly by a fluid, a liquid. Or another word that we commonly use with regard to baptism would be immersion or immerse. And it's the idea that you actually go all the way under and you're covered up. You're covered up. And the word baptism or baptize comes from a transliteration of that Greek word. That Greek word is baptizo. So we didn't really have a word in the English for that. So they just came up with baptism or baptized or baptize, depending on what sense of the word or, or use of the word you're using. But that's what it means is to be completely covered. Now, when you think about that definition, that's going to resolve some of the questions that some of our religious friends might have, actually, when you get down to it. The idea of sprinkling or pouring being baptism uh, it doesn't cut it when you deal with what the definition is in the Scripture. And I don't want to go off on a tangent on that, but the, the very definition of the Word itself should cover and answer some of those issues and those questions when you think about what, what do you mean by baptism? What, what does that mean? What means to be literally covered up, to be fully immersed into something? Now, in this case, when we talk about being immersed in the waters for baptism, we're talking about being covered up with regard to baptism. You know, I've been at some baptisms where a foot comes up out of the water. And we're like, all right, got to do it again. I've been some places, and Doug, you'll appreciate this, maybe Scott, uh, we, in Ukraine. I remember early on, we didn't have baptistries. We didn't have some portable baptistries even that we have now. We were baptizing in bathtubs. And so when you baptize in a bathtub, let me tell you, you most of y'all who, who, I don't take soaking baths because I don't fit in a bathtub. So, I mean, that kind of tells you there the issues and the problems with regard to baptizing in a bathtub, right? But you want to fully immerse someone, you got to make sure they're under the water. They are overwhelmed by the waters. They are taken under the water. They are completely covered over by that fluid. And so it becomes difficult, obviously, but you want to make sure you're doing it because that's what baptism means for us. There's a couple examples you can see in the Scriptures that don't even deal with the saving baptism. I think the word baptizo is used a couple other places in the New Testament. One in Luke chapter 11, verse 38, that word baptizo is used there, and it is translated as being ceremonially cleansed, ceremonially cleansed or washed. Uh, and so you see that, and that's the idea that if you go back to the Old Testament, you can look and see what the priests had to do in order to prepare themselves to offer uh, a sacrifice to God. They literally had to cover themselves and make sure that they were clean and cleansed. And so the word is used there with regard to ceremonial washing. And another example that we see is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-2, through 2, where this Greek word is used as well there. It is a reflection back to the Old Testament, uh, to the Exodus, where Moses and the children of Israel were completely covered by the cloud in the sea. And I think that's a very interesting concept. When they walked through the Red Sea, they talked about it being a baptism because they were completely covered at that point in time, the, the idea of God and the cloud covering and leading the nation is that the concept kind of con conveyed there uh, with regard to that same word. It is a covering wholly of the individual or the group. And we can't really avoid that when we think about baptism here in the New Testament pursuant to what God has said in our plan of salvation, these elements used for conversion's sake. Baptism is needed. Baptism is essential. And you cannot argue it when you look at the plain text and reading of God's Word. There are so many different arguments, and I don't have time to get into them tonight. We're not going to have the time in one class to be able to cover any, each and every possible objection that someone might be able to have to baptism. And I'll tell you, they are hashed and rehashed all the time. Get online, you can read them, just Google it. 
you're going to see. But almost every time, what you're going to see is there's a fallacy to any argument that says baptism is not essential for salvation. There's going to be some little chink in that armor. There's going to be some little crack in their logic or their persuasion that tells you that, in fact, hey, this doesn't jive in this situation. And if it doesn't jive in every situation, it cannot be what God wants. It cannot be. And without mistake and without fail, what you understand when you read God's Word is that God planned for us to reach out and finally grab a hold of that gift of salvation as we go into that watery grave of baptism. Real quickly, a couple of points that I want to think about. As you think about baptism and how essential it is and what it does for us, and when we uh, make that decision and make that choice to be, become a baptized believer of Jesus Christ, uh, a couple, three quick points that I want to point out to you that I think will be good for us, and it'll hopefully help understand it and maybe give you a little bit more of a logical understanding or maybe um, reasons and explanations that you can help use as you teach and preach to others about how essential baptism is for us and what it does for us. And that's why it's essential, because of what it does. Think about these points. First, baptism washes us in Christ's blood. Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, it talks about there that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I love the, the figurative language of the book of Revelation, talking about the victory that we have through Christ Jesus, that when we are in Christ, when we have His blood washing us, cleansing us, giving us that white robe of righteousness, then we are then presented ourselves to God as His chosen people. And the, through the book of Revelation, you see this. You see the same kind of description and language with regard to Paul and his conversion. If you think back in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, as he's recounting his conversion, he talks about the fact that Ananias tells him, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul, don't wait. Why are you waiting? What's so important, Ananias? Call on his name. What does it mean, calling on his name? What does that mean? Calling on his name? Well, calling on his name means you get up and you're baptized and you wash away your sins. Calling on his name by the actions that you take. You're calling on Jesus. You're calling on God. You're reaching out for that gift of salvation that he's given to you because you realize that your sins tarnish you. They make you spotted. They make you stained. And there's only one remedy for that. It's not resolve. It's not some leading detergent. The only thing that's going to wash your sins away is the blood of Jesus Christ. Why do you delay? Get up. Be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on His name. The book of Revelation stresses to us that by being washed in the Lamb's blood, one's garments become white. Salvation is found. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, and Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, the presentment that we have of being white and, and cleansed and whole or holy, being unspotted, being sanctified, that washing of sins is a point sometimes of contention. And some people say, well, when does this washing occur? When does it occur? It becomes, it occurs at baptism. Scriptures aren't silent about this. The blood of Christ was shed in his death. And only as the believer imitates the death of Christ can contact with the blood be found. And we see that fully discussed in Romans chapter 6. I'm not going to read necessarily all 11 verses, but look at Romans chapter 6, 
verses 1 through 11. And you're going to see the discussion there and the parallel nature of our life and our baptism into God, into Christ Jesus, paralleling God's sacrifice of His Son and His sacrifice, His death, His resurrection for us. Look real quickly with me, chapter 6. As you see there in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is a master over Him. And guess what? It's not a master over us either. Death doesn't mean much to us if we have Jesus Christ. If we have this parallel nature and this parallel life that we have with Jesus Christ because of our baptism, our baptism really makes us become in contact with His blood. It is at that point of immersion in the watery grave of baptism that our old body is done away with and that water cleanses us spiritually because we have recognized all these other things and we realize and know that when we go into the waters of baptism, we parallel that death, that burial, that resurrection of Jesus Christ and we rise up as a new man or a new woman. We rise up in newness of life knowing that our sins have been washed away. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. The believer clearly dies and is buried and is then raised to walk a newness of life when we are baptized in the watery grave of baptism. According to Romans chapter 6, this creates a new life for us and it should be something that we look forward to, that we expect. But that new life does not occur until we are baptized. We are still an old man or old woman dealing with our sins if we don't go through baptism. The scriptures validate this conclusion in Acts chapter 2 verse 38 as Peter talked and told them that to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The forgiveness of your sins occurs after baptism. It occurs after they emulate that very death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord God that they crucified on the cross of Calvary. The scripture is validated in chapter 22, verse 16, when Paul was told to rise up and be baptized for the forgiveness of his sins and have his sins washed away, is the phrase used there in Acts chapter 22. Through baptism, we parallel the crucifixion and our death to sin becomes evident. We die to our sins. Our old lives of sin is crucified with Christ. We're buried with Christ through baptism into our death, symbolizing our burial, our, our, our sinful nature that we have chosen goes away and dies and is buried. We rise as a new creature, and it's through baptism that the grand deliverance from sin may occur. That is the point when we have grabbed a hold 
of that gift of salvation that God has offered to us. You rise out of the waters and you grab a hold of the gift because that's the new life that God promises for us. Baptism also unites us with Christ. And so when you think about the idea of uniting us with Christ, it's, it's a very similar composition of the argument there. Obviously, baptism, as you parallel the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can't help but see we are united and unified with Him. In fact, that's exactly what uh, Paul just said there as we read in, in verse uh, chapter 6. As we thought about the, the conclusion, we become united, verse 5, with Him. We become partakers in His death, His burial, resurrection, depending on what version you might be able to be reading from. But that gift of salvation is only found in Christ Jesus. So if someone has a difficulty in understanding that baptism is essential, maybe this is a way you need to discuss. I love the phrase in Christ. In fact, I did a lesson series on it several years ago here uh, and delving into that, that phrase and how it's used in the Scripture. And I didn't get through with it because it's found so many times. But when you think about in Christ Jesus, you cannot help but understand that the only way we have salvation. The only way we have forgiveness of sins is if we are in Christ Jesus. So that begs the question, how do we get in Christ Jesus? Doesn't it? If that's where those blessings are found, if that's where that gift of salvation has occurred and grabbed a hold of, and if that's where we find forgiveness of sins, how do we get there? How do we get in Christ? Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 28, it says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Again, think back there, the first part of that verse. For all of you who were baptized into Christ. Paul tells us very clearly there that baptism is how we are united. Baptism is the one, the way that we get into Christ. And it's only in Christ that we're able to enjoy the gift of salvation and all the benefits that come with that gift. We are justified as a gift by His grace or redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 3, verse 24. We are justified by faith in Christ Jesus, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. We are alive to God when we are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 6, verse 11. We have eternal life in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. There's no condemnation, no condemnation when we are in Christ, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We are joined together as one body in Christ, Romans chapter 12, verse 5. We are sanctified in Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. We obtain grace given to us when we are in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I think that's an important one to maybe underscore there for you. So many people say, oh, we're, we're saved by grace. We're saved by the grace of God. We are. But you know when you, when you obtain that grace? When you're in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter five, uh, verse one, chapter 1, verse 4. We're a new creature in Christ, as we just read in Romans chapter 6, and it's also seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. We obtain every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places when we are in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Baptism unites us. In Christ. And if you want to talk about where you grab a hold of that gift of salvation, if you want to talk about how do we obtain eternal life, if you want to talk about somebody about how do we know that we have salvation and forgiveness of our sins, we know when you are in Christ. And Galatians chapter 3 says the only time that happens, we are baptized into Christ. There's the pathway. 
There's the pathway. Baptism also over, overwhelms us with salvation. Very quickly, we think about the idea of, of forgiveness. What does baptism do for us? It is not only an overwhelming for us. We go under the water. We go in the water. We are whelmed, if you want to use that word. We're covered over. But the reality becomes we are continually covered by the forgiveness that God gives to us in our lives. Acts chapter 2, verse 30, it says, Repent, each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of of your sins. You know, we once were lost, now we're found. Once we're blind, now we see. You think about your sin life, your sinful life. You once were full of sin, but now you're forgiven. You once were a slave to sin, but now you are free in Christ. Baptism provides that for us. It is only through baptism that we are overwhelmed with salvation. And salvation comes by none other. I don't have time to really go through this. I'll throw this up here and I'll be glad to share this with any. The elements of conversion in the book of Acts, I think, are very interesting to look at. If you look at the, the conversion stories in the book of Acts, you can look at these different elements that we've been discussing, these different five things. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. And what you see in almost every conversion story is a mentioning of them specifically. Or there's going to be an inference there. A good inference that I like to think about is, is the Philippian jailer. Philippian jailer, of course, if you remember the story there, when, when Paul was there in prison and, and God brought the earthquake and then they did not leave the prison, right? They stayed there. And so the Philippian jailer was going to kill himself and they said, no, don't harm yourself. We're all here. We're here. And from that point on, they, they taught him. And in fact, later, what you see is after the teaching, the jailer cleaned their wounds, dressed their wounds, and then he and his household were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And that passage of Scripture is very interesting. You, hear, you, you see the hearing part, and I think uh, the hearing is and the teaching is there. It talks about the teaching uh, of Paul to the Philippian jailer and his family. Uh, the idea that they believed, I believe, is actually mentioned there. They believed. Uh, but repentance is not there necessarily specifically stated. But I remember I have in my Bible, and I'm not going to turn to it right now, but I have it circled there whenever he's cleaning they're cleaning the wounds. That's an act of repentance. Why else would he clean the wounds of the one that they had imprisoned? Because he had a change of mind that led to a change of action. Repentance is definitely inferred there because he changed his life. And he was baptized. So you see specifically mentioned in these passages or necessarily implied or inferred from the context and the passage of Scripture. Well, how do we know that? Well, it's because the same gospel message is preached every time. It does not change. It does not change. And that's the same gospel message we've been speaking about over the last five weeks. That God loved us so much, He sent His Son, His only Son, to die for us on that cross of Calvary. He lived a perfect life. He was sinless. He became that perfect sacrificial lamb for our sakes that day on Calvary. Because we hear that message, we dig in deeper and we listen. We believe that message. We understand, we come to terms of the fact that, that God sent His Son for us and we accept that as truth and we apply it in our lives. And when we apply that truth into our lives, it's going to make our lives change. It's going to cause repentance it's going to change our minds. That's going to bring about a change in action. And because of that change in action, we're going to be ready to confess that we want to be 
with God. We want to be on Jesus' side. And in fact, that Jesus is our Savior. We're going to be ready and willing to confess that. But it doesn't stop there. No scripture stops short. When you think of the scripture as a whole, again, Psalm 119, all the sum of thy word is truth. You cannot leave out the fact that you must be baptized for the remission of your sins. Not just being baptized to be added as a member of some denominational congregation. That's not what baptism is about. Baptism is about forgiving our sins. It's about meeting Jesus in the watery grave of baptism. We know that. And because we know that, we are baptized and we give up our lives for a new life. And we become a Christian. Next week, next week, as we continue our study and think about the elements of being truly converted and the elements of grabbing a hold of that gift of salvation. I want to talk about now that we've grabbed a hold of that gift of salvation, now that we've talked about how do you grab it, how do you guard it? And so let's think next week as we think about the guarding of the gift that God has been so wonderfully loving to give to us. Thank you so much for your time tonight.